When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. Find it just so out of sorts with the basic value system of the American people. And I think that across the board, the vast majority of the American people don't agree with a lot of the decisions this court is making. President Biden, in an exclusive interview with my colleague Nicole Wallace, responding to today's very predictable Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. And that is where we begin tonight, with the United States Supreme Court once again turning the arc of justice away from equality and back to the early 20th century, striking down the use of affirmative action in college admissions. The Roberts Court, which wouldn't even look like the court it is today without affirmative action, deciding in a pair of rulings that race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina violate equal protection under the Constitution. It is fitting, then, that it would be the court's first black woman justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, who clearly articulated the cost of this latest regression, writing in her dissent, with let them eat cake obliviousness. Today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. The best that can be said of the majority's perspective is that it proceeds ostrich-like from the hope that preventing consideration of race will end racism. The court essentially says in this ruling that after a generation or two of racial progress in education, after hundreds of years of ranked discrimination on the basis of race, we've done enough. We're all equal. Kumbaya. Everything's fine. Despite vast and persistent inequalities in wealth literally created on the backs of black Americans and kept in place for generations, even after this country stopped enslaving black people on the basis of race in 1865. For the better part of the next century, America embraced the concept of separate but equal. Black students were told, yeah, you can have a school, but it's going to be a one room shack with old useless textbooks that's only open when it wasn't planting season. And that didn't end officially until the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board decision in 1954. And then in the 1960s, white segregationist mobs rioted when black students had the temerity to try to attend schools like the University of Mississippi. And who could forget Governor George Wallace physically blocking the doors to the University of Alabama? Apparently, at least six members of the court have forgotten, the current court anyway, It's only really been since the 1960s that we have had any real promise of racial equality in education or any promise of fairness in society. And that was thanks to Chief Justice Earl Warren's Supreme Court in the 1950s and 60s, which revolutionized America, dramatically expanding civil rights and civil liberties for all Americans. The Warren Court ended racial segregation in public schools, expanded voting rights, upheld free speech, legalized interracial marriage, and paved the way for legalizing abortion. All landmark changes moving us forward. But this Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, or perhaps I should call it the Alito Court, will definitely go down in history as the opposite. 
yanking back American progress in direct repudiation of the Warren Court and the 20th century. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the first Latina to sit on the court, acknowledged as much in her dissent, writing that this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. The devastating impact of this decision cannot be overstated. The majority's vision of race neutrality will entrench racial segregation in higher education because racial inequality will persist so long as it is ignored. As for the court's conservative majority, six of them chose to side with the petitioner in both of today's cases, Students for Fair Admissions, which contrary to its name, is not actually students, but rather a group led by a man named Edward Blum, a conservative legal strategist who for many, many years has been bent on killing consideration of race in college admissions. Well, he finally got a court majority that would give him his way. But according to Chief Justice John Roberts' majority opinion, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. I mean, so long as aspiring students write about the way race impacted them in their college essays exactly the way John Roberts tells them to. And with today's death blow to affirmative action, one justice in particular seemed to revel and pulling up the ladder behind himself. Justice Clarence Thomas, who has acknowledged that he has benefited from affirmative action. In a frankly gleeful concurrence, Thomas wrote, even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals were not the sum of their skin color. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold out enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles. Ah, adorable. Today, in court chambers, Thomas said the policies at UNC and Harvard fly in the face of our colorblind constitution, the constitution that at one point deemed him to be three-fifths of a human being. NBC News reports that as Thomas spoke, Justice Jackson stared straight ahead, apparently visibly angry. In the meantime, America's colleges and universities will begin the process of determining how to maintain diversity without violating this court's ruling. Joining me now is Reverend Al Sharpton, president of the National Action Network and host of Politics Nation, Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation, Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst and professor at the University of Alabama Law School, and David Inahosa, director at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, who argued in defense of affirmative action at the Supreme Court. Thank you both. Uh, thank you all for being here. And um, David Inhofe, I do want to start with you because you were there. You were in the courtroom as these case as this case was being argued. It, it, would you characterize these sort of interactions? I mean, I know in the Harvard Law case, C Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson recused because she actually has a moral center and a moral core, unlike the person I'm also talking about, Clarence Thomas, who takes lots of gifts. What was the what was what were the debates and the argument like? Well, Joy. Of course, you know, this is very difficult issues, right? Whether or not you can consider race, how you're considering race. Uh, and given, you know, the incredible histories that we have here of racial exclusion and racial violence, it certainly seems fitting that, you know, we continue to have this because we've had a lot, we've had a couple of centuries of that violence and that history compared to just a few decades That's right. of being free of that. Even at the University of North Carolina, they had, uh, you know, that university was created in 1789 to serve the children of 
slave owners at the time. And they fought for 200 years to continue to exclude uh, black students. So we knew going in to the argument that it was going to be a tough sell for this court, sure. this sitting court. Prior courts re with Republican appointed and Democratic appointed justices had put aside those differences of uh, politicized opinions. Uh, but this court, through some of its questions, you could kind of start reading through. But we did feel very strongly that the law, the facts, and the Constitution were on our side. And we had strong evidence from our own students discussing how and why it's important for them to lift up their own lived experiences and when those are affected by uh, their race. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we knew it was going to be tough. Uh, but we also felt that we had done what we needed to do. If this court was going to try and pull down on affirmative action or pull down on the progress that we made, mm -hmm. it was it should have been you know very tough for them yeah. to have done that. Sounds like it was pretty easy though for them. Um, and you and ironically, you're the one who had the students with you, Ellie Mastal. Uh, eager to hear your thoughts on this decision. Well, let's start with the idea that the Supreme Court got it completely wrong in terms of the law. OK, the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, it was not passed to help white bail sons like Jared Kushner and Brett Kavanaugh get into school. OK, the first time that we had affirmative action in this country was not the 1960s. It was the 1860s. We had affirmative action during Reconstruction. And we know that, we, that the affirmative action during Reconstruction was constitutional because they ratified the 14th Amendment so that they could pass legislation that would help to revoke the racism of the past, and those policies included affirmative action. So as Ketanji Brown-Jackson pointed out in her dissent and at oral arguments, the Supreme Court was just flatly wrong on the law. Now, we can all know why the Supreme Court decided to get this particular law so wrong, and it wasn't a help the AAPI students who were trying to get into Harvard and Yale. It was to trying to help mediocre white students who feel outcompeted and blame black students for, quote unquote, taking their spots. It was a terrible decision on the law, but we all know the real reason why people like John Roberts did it. And I mean, just to, to sort of uh, make that point and, and sort of, you know, enhance that point, Joyce Vance, um, they left in place the other ways in which elite schools like Harvard and, um, and you know, the, the IVs and all the other schools decide who can get in. They said you can still let legacies in. They didn't touch that kind of affirmative action, which is for, you know, the wealthy scions of mainly white families. They left in place, if you're an athlete, that's fine. And they left in place this, the people who are related to somebody who works at the school. So what they're saying is the only thing that a school can't consider is if you are not white. The argument that the court accepts today is that there's an equal protection violation if you attempt to address the failures of our history by considering someone's race, not, not solely making a decision based on their race, but considering it as one of a, of a package of factors that go into that decision-making process. And, and like Ellie says, what's so frustrating about this decision, I almost find it hard to put into words. You know, lawyers, we agree with decisions that courts make all the time. It doesn't mean that those decisions are wrong. It means that there are two sides and we were on the losing side. But this decision is in a different category, a category reserved for very few cases. 
It's a case where the decision is wrong on its face. It's wrong because it's made in ignorance of the law, deliberate ignorance. And it's wrong because factually it's so inaccurate. It, it echoes from the Shelby County case, where, which Chief Justice Roberts also wrote. And in Shelby County, the voting rights case, he said, we don't need to enforce these old criteria under the Voting Rights Act anymore. There's no reason to believe that black people are still being discriminated against when they register, when they have low turnout numbers. And he was dead set wrong on that. Here he is now saying, we no longer need to protect black people in admissions decisions. The time for that is past, is what he in essence says. And I think history again will prove him wrong. The question is at the cost of how many young, valuable lives, people who will never realize the heights that they could realize. You know, and Rev, uh, you know, I think that is such a key point because you know, we had a country in which the planter class um, became extravagantly wealthy off of the labor, the free labor of black people. And then, you know, 88 years after we had technically were made citizens, people were still, you know, blocking the schoolhouse door for people to get in even after Brown v. Board. But this court is essentially saying, yeah, but you had 60 good years. You don't need anything more. And we essentially were all even when that is so untrue. Can you talk about some of the larger ramifications of this? Because it's not just college admissions. If we have fewer black doctors, we have fewer people who understand, uh, you know, that black women cannot accept more pain. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's so many ways in which this reverberates. Please talk about them. No, this clearly stips, uh, uh, puts a dagger in the back of blacks, but it also has ramifications for women and others. And it can be used in other areas of American life, because when you say it is unconstitutional now to consider race, well, will we be saying that in the private sector about jobs and about contracts and about board seats that many groups like mine fight for? I mean, they have in many ways said that you cannot consider race in America. And, and some will say, oh, they're just limiting it, limiting it to academia. Well, anyone can then say, well, wait a minute, if it's unconstitutional, I can't do it in my business. I can't do it across the board. And how do you argue that when they have misconstrued the 14th Amendment, which was there for the opposite reason. The fact of the matter is that we are in a political uh, court put there, a third of which was put there by Donald Trump, who said, make America great again. This is the Trump court that is trying to go back pre-Board of Education 1954, and that's where this ruling came down today. And the insult, to add insult to injury, to say, well, you can write about your black, but you can't decide that I'm going to help you because you're black. That's just something I can sit in my comfortable chair and read about the misery you suffered. But I I cannot say, because of the misery that was done by law, we must remember, Joy, that we were discriminated not by habit, not even by culture, by law. Rosa Parks was arrested. She wasn't sent to therapy. She broke the law. And they're saying, by law, 
you no longer have to consider this. And in fact, it is unconstitutional to even consider it when blacks are still 10 percent of white wealth in this country. When we are across the board, the metrics speak for itself of the racial divide. That didn't happen because we were genetically inferior. That happened because the law made us less than equal citizens in this country. And David Inahosa, I mean, the, broad, the, the, the implications are broad, and it is beyond just African-Americans. Latinos are also underrepresented in colleges, even in places like California, where Latinos are the largest racial group. Um, this is going to impact everyone except rich, you know, the, the scions of rich white families. Well, it will if we let it, right? Because this decision, as incredibly distressing as incredibly tragic it is to what we know as the rule of law, which everybody likes to say, but they don't like to you know, put it in practice, as distressing as everything is. This case actually is just about Harvard and UNC's uh, admissions program. And there are avenue, other avenues of support that can be pushed forward. And I say that because we're not resting on this. This is going to be our launch pad. This, we're going to be reinvigorated by this and united across races and ethnicities, including the Asian American community. Who they always try to use against the rest of us, and, and they're not standing for it. And, and, and they're not going to stand for this because they know what the potential ramifications are, as Reverend Sharpton talked about the contrariness in these opinions. But the fact is, is that students, and they need to know this, Yeah, they need to know that they can fully express themselves in their applications, all of their talents, all of their experiences, all of those incredible gifts that they bring to that university, they cannot leave those on the table. They need to bring those in their applications, and universities should not be trying to censor that either. Yeah. If they do censor it, we'll end up going after the universities because, again, you know, this is a terrible decision, but yeah. we need to try and see, you know, some of the silver And you guys are the ones there. who actually have students with you, unlike the people who sued. Reverend Al Sharpton, Ellie Mastal, Joyce Vance, David Inahosa, thank you. And up next, we'll be talking with a professor and students impacted by today's decision, including a former UNC student who was granted legal standing to argue in defense of affirmative action before the Supreme Court. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
As we continue to swallow this bitter fruit that the majority conservative justices have forced down our throats today, I want to read you one tweet that spoke to me from historian, writer, and friend of the show, Michael Harriet. He wrote, the Supreme Court did not strike down affirmative action. Admission preferences for legacies, donors, employee families, and special recommendations are all still allowed. The court struck down affirmative action for everyone except white people. To his point, prior to today, Harvard has described race as a potential tip or plus factor, along with whether one of the student's parents graduated from the undergraduate college, whether a student comes from a low-income family, and whether a student has special athletic talent. After today, the only tips that remain are legacy, low income, and special athletic talent. Joining me now are Andrew Brennan, a 2019 graduate of the University of North Carolina, who was a party to the affirmative action case involving that university. Angie Gabot, president of the Harvard Black Students Association. And Michael Eric Dyson, professor of African-American and diaspora studies at Vanderbilt University and co-author of Unequal. A story of America, apropos on today. I do want to start here at the table with you, Angie. Um, we were just having the whole Harvard House conversation, but we're <laughs> going to have a conversation that's more serious now. When I was at Harvard, there were a lot of legacies. There were a lot of people there who didn't get in because they had great grades. They got in because, you know, they mama and daddy, grandparents' name might be one of those exactly. buildings. Those people can still get in. Their affirmative action seems quite in place. Mm. What do you make of that? No, I totally agree. That's still true today. Um, there's also, like, you know, we've seen it um, in other cases, like the back door, the side door, um, mm-hmm. other ways to get into Harvard. Um, but they just struck it down just for black students and black and brown students um, on campus to be able to have um, specific access due to, like, disadvantages in yeah. specific circumstances. And when I was there, the, one of the other experiences I had is that the so-called affirmative action kids were some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. They all worked really hard in school, mm-hmm. were super nerds. I mean, Gatanji Brown Jackson was there when I was there. Right. Okay. This is a brilliant human being. Exactly. And they were hardworking. The very, very well-off, you know, very affluent kids didn't have to work as hard. They had it set no matter what happened to them. And so I wonder what you make of the fact that this court seems to think that choosing students like you is an affront to the Constitution. No, it's, it's really crazy. At least in my experience, I really found that my race is my identity. All the stories that I've told Harvard, which is the reason I got in, um, were directly correlated with my race because I live as a black woman every single day. Um, and a lot of my peers um, and counterparts that are also black, like I get to hear their amazing stories and what they get to do um, every day that you just need in a school like Harvard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Andrew, you uh, testified, I think, in one of the lower court cases. Um, I would love to know what you make of the decision and how you think it will change the university um, from which you graduated if people cannot freely, the university cannot freely choose students like you. Thanks, Joy. Yeah, you know, when I, I think it's important to remember the context at UNC in which this decision has been made. Uh, When I was a student at UNC, the school was 11% Black in a state that was 22% Black. Uh, You know, Joy, I had grown up my entire life in the South, uh, but it wasn't until my time at UNC uh, did I see my first and second Confederate rallies on campus. Uh, And so it's within that context uh, that this lawsuit was brought. Uh, And I think it speaks to uh, how absurd it is uh, that this is not uh, a compelling interest 
uh, to ensure diversity on our college campuses. We share that. I saw my first Confederate flag at Harvard as well. Someone unfurled it very large so, and was so that when those of us who are black had to walk beneath it as we went to the library. Fun times. Uh, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, you have taught at many PWIs at many very prominent uh, majority white universities. How do you think these universities, in your experience, in the way that they try to recruit students, will react to this decision? Well, Joe, I taught at Chapel Hill for three years. Um, you know, I, I think that, look, the left has to have a long game and strategy like the right does. They've been laying in wait for 50 years to try to figure out Roe versus Wade, and they worked on it. And we got to understand and underscore before I directly answer your question, why voting matters. Because yes. Donald Trump not in office means that three Supreme Court justices that he appointed would not have been appointed and Hillary Clinton instead would have appointed them. So voting continues to matter. I think that schools have the wide latitude and the ability to count race as merit. Right. So when we have a notion of merit, merit is not an abstract good. Right. Uh, if you're in a boxing ring, it's meritorious to strike out and hurt somebody. If you're in your home, it's called domestic violence. The same act. Or when they said you can consider race. Uh, I mean, race was considered in terms of harming black people, but not to heal them. Well, the same intrusion that a bullet makes in the body, a surgeon makes to remove it. So it can't be that race is the problem in terms of removing the hurt and bringing healing about as it was in terms of intending harm. This kind of gobbledygook and malfeasance and ledger domain by the Supreme Court justices is utterly ridiculous. White folk get the hook up, black folk get the hook. So what yeah. we have to do is to understand that we have to continue to strategize like we did before there was affirmative action so we can have a long plan. Schools can still consider race, among many other factors, you can't stop a school from saying diversity is incredible, incredibly important and name that diversity in ways that obscure the racial dimension right. for strategic purposes. Let, let me go quickly ask you what you make of Clarence Thomas's concurrence. Yeah, that is a shameful manifestation of a lethal and malignant black self-hatred that continues to express itself in the derision that he holds black people. This is an unfortunate and remarkable situation where a black man who used affirmative action because his mediocrity is not a secret. He barely speaks in the Supreme Court. His inarticulate vows continue to manifest an intelligence that is quite markedly uh, inferior. And yet he has the ability and the power to kill black people metaphorically by lifting up the very ladder that he used to get up on affirmative action. Yeah. This is so foul and nefarious in so many ways. And Andrew, I'll ask you the same thing. What did you make of the fact that the first, uh, the, the second to black Supreme Court justice uh, gleefully uh, saw the end of affirmative action, which he has been trying to do for a long time? I, I think it's a real shame. Um, and as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in her dissent, uh, because of today's decision, uh, the police can consider my race when assessing uh, suspicion of a crime. Uh, but a college admissions officer uh, can't consider my race uh, when assessing uh, the potential contributions that I could make to a college campus. Yeah. I think it's that sort of tortured logic uh, that makes uh, no sense. And it's not just black people that are harmed by this, Joy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Having diverse college campuses benefit black and white students of all all races. Uh, benefit. So that's what Ind we're losing. Indeed. And I'm going to give you the last word here. What advice would you give uh, the next you who's applying to Harvard in this environment? 
I would say hold out hope. Um, I was outside the Supreme Court today, and there's a lot of people who are rallying. Um, and also take action. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people will, you know, say that they feel uncomfortable or they feel disappointed by this decision. Yeah. But we, that also has to come with action. That also has to come with, you know, community building, community Amen. organizing. And I would give one piece of advice to everybody who is unhappy with the Supreme Court, vote and vote all the way down the ballot because it is the United States Senate who confirms Supreme Court justices. And it's who you pick for president that's going to decide who gets nominated. You've got to vote. Don't leave it to people who like Donald Trump. Uh, Andrew Brennan, Angie Gabot, Michael Eric Dyson, thank you all very much. Up next, three members of Congress representing minority caucuses weigh in on today's momentous ruling. We'll be right back. Today's affirmative action decision is a cultural earthquake that will reverberate throughout society. As Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in her dissent, race-conscious college admissions are critical for providing equitable and effective public services, public services in healthcare, education, the legal system, and politics. She noted today's decision further entrenches racial inequality by making these pipelines to leadership roles less diverse. The court ignores the dangerous consequences of an America where its leadership does not reflect the diversity of the people. And the Congressional Black, Asian and Pacific, uh, Pacific American and Hispanic caucuses released a joint statement writing, quote, today's decision deals a needless blow to America's promise of equal and fair opportunity. And joining me now is Congresswoman Judy Chu of California, chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, Congressman Steve Horsford of Nevada, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and Congresswoman Teresa Legere Fernandez of New Mexico, vice chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Thank you all for being here. Um, I, I want to get all of your reactions to the ruling, but Representative Chu, I do want to start with you because... I feel like one of the things that uh, John Roberts did in his um, in his decision and that the other and that other conservatives who are excited about this decision do is they point at Asian Americans and say they are the reason we need to get rid of affirmative action, even though every Asian American that I know is for affirmative action. Um, but they try to divide all of us and carve out Asian Americans into a separate category. What do you make of that and what do you make of the decision? Well, conservatives on the right have been trying to use Asian Americans as a wedge in their uh, desire to get rid of affirmative action. But in reality, this Supreme Court decision today uh, is no net positive for AAPIs. Actually, there was a study done uh, on what benefit there would be if affirm affirmative action ends. And for places like Harvard, uh, there would be virtually no increase. But what we um, really are distressed about is that uh, for those who are Pacific Islander or Southeast Asian, there clearly will be a detriment to their ability to enter these higher education institutions. So uh, it it's it's based on uh, flawed reasoning. And in fact, they didn't even uh, produce harmed people as they did in the case of Baki and, and these other folks. They actually had an organization that filed the case. And that tells you something. They could not find the evidence that would show that AAPI, AAPIs were harmed by affirmative action. Yeah. And Representative Horsford, you know, the the sort of reasoning by the uh, conservative majority here was that the 
Constitution is colorblind. And they sort of made this sort of typical argument that you hear on the right a lot that there's nothing in the Constitution that says anything about race. And therefore, our country is colorblind. And therefore, why are all of you, you know, mainly blacks trying to get things that, you know, white people should have? <laughs> what do you make of that? Well, thank you, Joy, for having us on. It's great to be on with Judy and Teresa. Um, look, I, I would have much rather had uh, the dissenting opinion uh, from Justice Kantanji Brown-Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor be the majority opinion. And what this reminds us is that elections have consequences. Uh, look, one of the justices that's part of this 6-3 uh, majority uh, got there um, without the benefit of actually having the support of, of the majority of the American people. That was a, a justice that should have been appointed by, by President Obama. It was Mitch McConnell and conservatives in the Senate that, that, that stacked the Supreme Court that caused this decision today. Uh, but I do want to send a very clear message. Affirmative action sadly does still stand. It stands for legacy programs. It stands uh, for the privileged. It just no longer applies to uh, race-based conscious uh, policy that includes African-Americans, Latinos, and Asian-American Pacific Islanders. And that's why the Congressional Black Caucus will be working to call for the uh, elimination of legacy programs Yes. across these institutions. Right, because, uh, well, and uh, Representative Legere Fernandez, we know how they feel about very rich people because they take them on trips. And so I think those, they're supposed to get extra benefits according to this court majority. But I, I, I note that this is happening at a time when in multiple states, including Texas, Latinos are now the plurality, the largest uh, ethnic group in multiple states. And as the country is moving toward uh, an era when we will not have a white majority, when this panel will represent represent the majority of Americans. And Donald Trump, who appointed three of these members, was a candidate who was acting out against that and in rage about that. It feels to me like this court represents that same rage. They hate these changes, these modernizations. And the Latino community is at the center of a lot of that anger. What do you make of this decision? Exactly. I think what the Supreme Court was trying to do today was to take us back and to deny the fact that racial discrimination has existed, has existed since uh, the beginning of our country. And that though that racial discrimination against Native Americans, against enslaved blacks, against those who then came later, Latinos, AAPI and so many more, that that took a lot of work to create. And that's why affirmative action was important. We needed to be able to create that opportunity so that we could undo the discrimination, so that we could undo the inequality. And I agree with Justice Sotomayor's dissent when she says that what the court did today was actually undermine the essence of the 14th Amendment itself. Because in the 14th Amendment, the goal was to create equal opportunity. And right now, what they are doing is on, you know, creating, recreating the injustice that so many of us have lived through. Yeah, because, of course, they have to protect the real victims of discrimination, which is uh, rich white folks uh, who, ha who go to, like, Choate and Andover and Exeter. Those are the people who this court apparently wants to protect, because they might grow up to give them fancy gifts. 
my opinion, not yours. Representatives Judy Chu, Stephen Horsford, and Teresa Legere Fernandez, thank you both very much. Up next, how the White House is reacting to today's big events. We'll be back after this. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. You said this court is not normal. What did you mean? What I meant by that is it's done more to unravel basic rights and basic decisions than any court in recent history. And uh, that's what I meant by not normal. It's, it's, it's gone out of its way to, I mean, for example, take a look at overruling Roe v. Wade. Take a look at what the decision today. Take a look at how it's, uh, how it's ruled on a number of issues that are, have been precedent for 50, 60 years sometimes. President Biden today sat down for an exclusive interview with my friend and colleague Nicole Wallace to talk everything from the Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action to what has become of the Republican Party. Joining me now to discuss is Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and former spokesperson for the House Oversight Committee, and Juanita Tolliver, political strategist and MSNBC political analyst. And despite the Supreme Court say, you know, you guys are both allowed to be here. So welcome. Okay. Thank, Thank you for having us. They, they, they don't love it. I know Clarence Thomas You're really don't love it. People. but. Yeah, yeah, but we we'll let you okay. all stay. Um, uh, so let's talk about this. So, so President Biden, uh, right off the top, of course, Nicole asked him about this decision and asked whether he thought that the court was abnormal. He did say he thought it was an abnormal court. What do you make of the fact that he then sort of pivoted to, I don't think that we should do anything to expand it necessarily. I mean, he did go institutionalist it's on that. It's fully grading me, Joy. Like when I saw that response, because you knew. President Biden was choosing his words very carefully. carefully. Yeah. He was not going to go too far into this is an undemocratic court or anything like that. Yeah. But he, he named the explicit damage and target and harm that this court is doing, but doesn't want to take any action. And that is what rubbed me wrong, because as a black woman in this country, as an individual who was under direct attack from multiple precedent-breaking decisions over the past few years from this court— I don't have the patience. So I'm looking at Biden like, you need to use every tool available to you beyond a study, beyond a report, and actually consider your options here because you can't say this court is taking the country in the wrong direction in one breath and then do nothing about it. Yeah, I mean, we had this conversation um, with the great Rachel Maddow and Nicole um, afterwards and Eddie Glaude afterwards, that there is this sort of disconnect between Biden's institutionalism. I mean, he is an OG politician. He's been around doing this since he was 29. Um, And he really does believe in the institutions. He's not faking that. He's like Barack Obama that way. Um, And the kind of panic that people are feeling, women, LGBTQ folks, minorities of all kinds, immigrants, migrants. It's a panic moment. But he is steady, Eddie, no matter what. Well, I think 
for him, that's what he perceives to be his strength. Like that's his biggest selling point. The, the, the contrast is, do you want competency or do you want chaos from right. the Republicans? And especially after what we saw on January 6th, after what we saw even just during COVID uh, and the hysteria that has since overrun the entire Republican Party, I think President Biden has made the calculation that this country, with all the unsettling that has happened and all the unsettling that, that is, is a product of these extreme decisions being made out by the Supreme Court, that, that, that steadying the ship, just riding the ship, before you can fix anything, you need to just make sure that everything is stable. That's right. the argument I think that he's leaning on as he heads towards the re-election. I do think that there is a danger here, though, that for the activist community, for the communities who are under fire right. and disenfranchised by the extremism of the Republican Party, whether you are a woman, a person of color, whether you're someone that's Asian-American who's been yeah. called a virus for the last couple yeah, of years, absolutely. you want that urgency, that recognition that it's scary And seen violence against the Asian-American community as right. a result of it. Because and I think that's the point, is that it is such a, a sort of pivotal moment. And it is Republicans who are doing it. He did talk about Republicans, too. Let's uh, see what he said. There's still a lot of really good Republicans. Out in the country. No, yes. and in the Senate. <laughs> who? Well, I, I think Mitt Romney's the first guy. There's a lot of them, but not Mitt, but others have come to me since I've been elected. Now it's six Republican senators. Two came at one time and the other four alone to tell me, Joe, I agree with you. But if I if I if I'm seen to do it, I lose a primary. It, it, it's not a profile in courage, but no. they're, they're, I still, you know me, I'm eternal optimist. I still think there's going to come a moment when they're going to be able to break. But I, I'm going to start to say, McCall, that's so Biden, because that's so Biden. Like, that is about Biden, right? I mean, he still wants to he wants to separate the MAGA from the Republicans and say there's still some good ones. They're not too courageous. Right. But they're there. And there's only six. Not a filibuster <laughs> proof of And not Mitt Romney. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's clear. It doesn't include Mitt. Not and, Mitt. And I think it's frustrating because this constant statement of they're still good Republicans. I, show me them. Yeah. Walk out with them in every city you're going to when you're talking about the economy. Walk out with them at the White House when you're putting out a new executive order. Show me them. Yeah. Because I, it's a fallacy in my mind. It doesn't exist. It's a figment of my imagination because when all of this harm is being done and they're silent, only coming to Biden in private, yeah. I don't even want to hear that there are six of them yeah. because the reality is they're still on board with causing the harm. They're still on board on not stopping any of the extremism that we're seeing from MAGA Republicans. You know where you're going to find them? You're going to find them in all the groundbreakings for the, <laughs> for the infrastructure. <laughs> He's taking the Biden bucks. Oh, oh yeah. They're like, Biden bucks, we'll right. take it. But we want to take credit for it. Where the Republicans are today is crowing and excited about affirmative action falling. And they feel very good about that. Because it's interesting that, I mean, Trump's whole purpose was payback mm. for white America, for Barack yes. Obama existing and not being essentially a hand puppet as president and being quiet and waving and saying, thank you, white people, for letting me be president. Essentially. And, and trying to do things, right? Right. And his retribution is this court. And they're getting it for them. Well, you go back to the original slogan, make America great again. Yeah. Going mm. backwards, their portrait of what a great America is, is the time before women had rights, before there was any march for equality, before people of color could have a fighting chance to compete in higher education. And now their, their big accomplishment is that they've unrolled all of that progress yeah. that we've made in this country, that we are now, it's, it's mind blowing to me that a child born right now will have less rights. Yeah than we did when we were born. Yeah, How is that right. possible that yeah. we've gotten to the point where we are seeing progress completely rolled back? And, and it goes back to the early conversation. Institutionalism isn't going to work. The institution wasn't designed for the wrecking ball that is the MAGA Republican Party yeah. being swung at it every right. single day. We need to do more. The institution also wasn't designed for any of us. Period. <laughs> 
And and I think that's what graded me most about what, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote and, and, and the fact that, oh, I want our country to live, make good on the values presented in the Constitution and the Declaration and all these all yeah. these documents that weren't written for, for him, him, me or anybody else. And so when I read his words, it's just giving self-loathing and, and just self-hatred to a level that came through. And I think about also him trying to come at Katanji Brown Jackson, mm-hmm. Justice Jackson, who didn't mince words on him either. And at I all. appreciate her calling out his obsession yes. with this race consciousness because he hates himself for it. Yeah. He, he, he hates the fact that, and, and the thing that's so wild about Clarence Thomas is he never would have been considered by Yale. This is somebody Period. who spoke Gullah. You know, he spoke the Geechee language until he was six years old. He is somebody Yale would have never considered but for affirmative action. And he seems to loathe everything about the opportunities he's been given and want to delete them for every other black person forever. It's it's so counterintuitive and insulting to everyone else who's now going to be denied those same opportunities. He to would have denied Ketanji Brown Jackson to be there because he would have said she couldn't be at home. I mean, you look at this table right here. This is the nightmare scenario for the Republican Amen. Party. Smart, independent, outspoken, diverse voices telling the truth about what's happening in their country. That's what the attack is on. That's what they're trying to silence to stop from happening. And not only that, but in alliance. Yes. Fully in agreement, and fully in understanding agreement. and hearing each other. And, un- and voting. <clears throat> Kurt Bardella and Juanita Tolliver, thank you. And we'll bring you all back anytime. Believe me, the Supreme yes. Court can't prevent it. We'll be right back. <laughs> I know they hate it, but they can't prevent it. Following today's Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action, there are still two potentially momentous Supreme Court decisions expected tomorrow. One, whether President Biden has the authority to erase more than $400 billion in student loan debt. The other involves a Colorado web designer who objects to providing services for same-sex marriages. She is challenging the state's public accommodations law, prohibiting businesses open to everyone from discrimination, including on the basis of sexual orientation. And of course, we will break it all down for you tomorrow on the readout that is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.